lose your dreams and you will lose your mind. I'm Heath Armstrong and this is Never Stop Peaking. It's depressing like a dimple on your butt. If you behave, you'll get a nickel you can spend on stuff. And in time, you'll get a dime if you impress your boss. So you can buy some more stuff just to numb your thoughts. You've been a space-driven higgity-hunk of me since birth. Flying through the universe on a rock called Earth. Composed of stardust with an emotional gut. While you letting conformity slam you up the butt. You're not one fucks, two fucks, red fucks, blue fucks. You can play duck hunt and wait around for luck. Or you can rent a big truck and drive your vision. Build a palace to the moon your schmuck friends piss their pants Get up and dance, rocket ship that booty Take a chance for your freedom, miggity milk that booby Cause when the fear attacks, it tries to crack what you're thinking Fuck no, you'll never stop peeking Welcome back, welcome back So happy to have your beauty, Grace my microphone, my headphones, my existence, my pup, Sachi Tananda, who is staring at me on the floor right now, wondering why, probably why I smell so bad, because I never go out and, and like take care of myself. I never become a civilized member of society. I'm just a fucking savage. I'm a savage. I'm a creative savage. No. No, we're all beautiful, even when we stink. And it's exciting. What else is exciting? Excitement is what should be driving everything that you do in life. I know we have these things that we, we call our money hustle, where we need to bring in some abundance to be able to support ourselves to eat, and that's fine. But what is it that that really fucking makes you want to tap dance? What is it that gets you up in the morning and like makes you just makes your blood flow? What do you do so effortlessly without even thinking about it because you love it so much? So if you don't do things that are meaningful and exciting to you, then you're not going to have the passion to finish the things that you're doing. And that's a big problem in the entrepreneurial journey and and creating something and trying to bring it to life is if you don't fully believe in it, if it doesn't make you want to jump up naked in the morning and flop all your private party parts around and do a little tap dancing to get started on it, to get raging in that sort of creativity, then you're not going to have the juice that you need to make this thing successful in the long run. You can get all of the motivation that you want from the outside world. But if you don't have inspiration, if you don't have it brewing internally, none of it's going to help you get to where you want to be in the long run. You can do affirmations, you can do visions, you can align everything. But if the actions that you're taking every day aren't in alignment with the things that actually excite you, then manifestation is bullshit. Because manifestation is just really, it's really just strategizing your own way into the bigger vision that you have of something that excites you. How do you create baby steps to get you to that point? Then you have these big fucking bad gremlins, the procrastination gremlins, the resistance gremlins that get in front of your face. 
And even if you have something that excites you, these can really fuck you up because they can keep you from doing the exciting stuff too. Procrastination can happen in in multiple different avenues. It can be because you have a really cloudy vision. You're not sure what you want to become or what excites you. And there's a lot of things that you can do to figure that out. Or it can be because you're the stuff that you're doing is not linked to the highest value or passion or purpose you have in the world. So therefore you procrastinate or resist because you're thinking about the other things that really do excite you that you want to be doing. But for some reason, someone in society told you it wasn't a good idea. It's never going to fucking work. You can't do that. They're projecting their own insecurities and bullshit onto you and you're believing it and you're resisting and procrastinating because of it. And the big one that I deal with a lot, and maybe you do too, is just this idea that even if we're working towards something that's super exciting, we may still procrastinate and resist those baby action steps that allow us to actually truly manifest by strategizing our own way into our bigger visions. We resist them because the idea feels too big and we just haven't taken the time to brain map it all out, to unchunk it down, to make it feasible, to allow us to take a bite. You can't just fucking golf. You can't just engulf the entire plate all at once. You can't do it. I mean, I've seen some crazy things in my life. I've, I guess it's certainly true that I thought you couldn't just consume an entire bottle of uh, Jägermeister at once, but this crazy fucking college one time just chugged the entire thing, ended up in an ambulance a couple minutes later, obviously. Um, Same with butt chugging. Many years ago, I interviewed Tucker, Tucker Max. I've seen people completely butt chug cans of things instantly. Anyways, I, I don't has nothing to do with this topic. I'm not going to go down that route right now. <laughs> I want to be serious, okay? Unchunk it. Break it down into baby steps. Is it linked to your highest value and excitement? These are really important things. If you're doing a project right now and you can't rattle off the reason why you are doing the project and how it's going to help you manifest or bring your big mission and core values to life, to bring your dreams to life. If you're working on projects and you cannot rattle off the reasons that these projects are going to help you bring your dreams to life or at least support them in some way, then why the fuck are you doing them? Stop doing them. It's resistance. It's procrastination. There's two sides, really. There's the positive side to life, to excitement, to creativity, and then there's the negative side to life, to projects, to your creativity, to your mood. There's a positive and a negative, and we can't just be eternal optimists all the time because eventually we feel the negative side. There has to be a balance, right? Which is what I try to convey in this show so often. Everything isn't fucking perfect. Everything isn't easy. It's hard. 
It's all really hard. But how much do you love it? How much does it mean to you? What does it feel like to be out there wandering around, being your own boss, doing what you love, creating things that you really truly care about and bringing them into the world? How much are you willing to sacrifice for that? If you spend all of your time pretending that everything is positive and that it only has one side, if you spend all of your time setting up this positivity fantasy, then you're going to spend a lot more time depressed when it doesn't match what you have in your head. You're going to spend a lot more time depressed when you have to deal with the shadow and the negativity because it doesn't match the fantasy that you've been feeding to yourself in your head. You got to pay attention to both sides. The beautiful stuff, the hard stuff, it's all relevant. It's all perfect. Just like that sexy little booty of yours that you keep shaking around in your in your chair while you're walking down the street. Everyone's looking at it and they're like, "Damn!" I like that shape. I like that color. Mm -mm -mm -mm. Look how creative that one is. That's you, the ultra creator, flying through space like an intergalactic banshee, busting through doors of opportunity, shedding off the layers that society stacked upon you to become that child that you've always been. That creative, passionate drive that you had when you portaled into this world through your mammy's womb. So what are you doing in your life that makes you want to fucking tap dance when you wake up and get excited to do? And how can you turn that into an opportunity to support yourself, to help other people because they work hand in hand? When you start helping other people with things that excite you, then opportunity will present itself for you to make money and to take care of yourself. So talking about the positive and the dark side, I think it's really awesome today to share an episode with you with Vicki Weinberg, who is the founder of tinychipmunk.com. And she's also the creator of the podcast, Bring Your Product Ideas to Life. Very direct, very clear. She helps people take ideas and bring them into the physical world. She does a much better job of that than, than I do as far as teaching how to design and, and you know launch a specific product. I find myself more in the inspirational, motivational realm of why you should be doing it. And so I find a lot of value when I connect with somebody like Vicky who can sort of help me connect the dots to you uh, and give you a roadmap of how you can actually do something, how you can bring it to life. We all work together collectively, right? So Vicky has has dealt with her shadow and her her light. And she went through a, a strong period of postpartum depression when she had her first child and thought she actually was going a little bit crazy. And in this, she made a transition away from the corporate world, working in oil and communication with people in the co- corporate industry uh, to discovering a love for teaching yoga to children and infants. Not knowing where that would lead other than that it excited her and it made her feel happier than her job did. And then while being in this transition, 
discovering opportunity to create her own products around the things that excite her with children. And so we are going to get into her entire story and then how she was able to go from having no idea that she was ever going to become an entrepreneur type to becoming one and the journey of what it's like to start helping other people do it as well and how she was able to bring a product to life and then duplicate that and then how you can do it too. So if you have an idea that you want to bring to life, which we all do, and you're struggling with with how to do it, this episode will help you because we talk about both of our experiences back and forth. And Vicky is quite amazing and she has an incredibly pleasing accent to listen to. So I'm going to hit some tunes. Then we're going to pop back into this episode. And yeah, all the show notes, heatharmstrong.com. This is brought to you by the Sweet Ass Affirmations deck. You can get that on Amazon or ragecreate.com. If you need little pick-me-ups to help turn your shitty days into big smiles in just seconds, legit, read one of these cards. There's 60 cards in a deck. Spent a lot of love and passion making them, and we appreciate your support when you when you grab them and you share them with friends. I think that's it for now. Let's get into the episode. Share this with somebody that you love, that you think could use some inspiration, and here we go. Come on, everybody, let me hear that beat. Come on, come on, everybody, let me hear that stinkity stinkity rinkity dinkity beat. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now let me start at the very beginning. And I must say it took great courage at the time because I needed the money. I was writing. I needed to be free creatively. Yeah, so Vicky, one, obviously could listen to your accent all day. Two, <laughs> I we have a lot of similar like create creation type vibes in common and the fact that we both have done something with our lives in the aspect of bringing product ideas into the real physical world. And in my, in this show and never stop peaking and really the show I had before this, The Entrepreneur Now, that show more often than this one, I was really trying to like get into the specifics of how to do something. But I realized over time that I, <laughs> the way that my creative mind works is like, I love talking about creativity and passion and inspiration. And 
when I sit down and like try to explain how I make a particular product and then like market it or, or what are all the steps to bring it into existence? I do a really bad job of it for my audience. So a lot of times people are like, that's like, this is all really awesome. And, and they get the enthusiasm behind doing something and I can, I'm sure I'm better at it than I give myself credit for, but uh, it's always fascinating for me to talk to someone such as yourself who, who goes through a similar process and then like seeing how you do it and what it's been like in your life. And then therefore like having that reflection for me and then everyone listening too, because it's just all of us creative entrepreneurs, we do things differently. So thank you for being here. And one, I can't remember exactly where you said you were, but I'd love to know like where you are physically and how you essentially, what was that moment in your life when I'm sure you had some sort of traditional background as far as like you did something that you were educated to do. And then all of a sudden there was like this, what the fuck am I doing? I should do something for myself. I want to be creative. I want to, I want to be my own boss type of uh, experience. What, what was that like? Like, where were you when that happened? And, and how long has it been since you transitioned from that? Yeah, sure. Well, hi, first. Firstly, thank you for thank you for inviting me on. I'm so excited to talk to you. Um, and I am in Kent in the UK, which is the Garden of England. For anyone who's interested, that's what they call it here. Um, and it is very beautiful. Um, so, okay. So if we go back to the beginning, we have to go quite a way back, I'm afraid. So I was, as you sort of put, said, I was in a corporate career. I kind of went to high school here in the UK and then I just started working straight out of school. I was always going to go on and get more education, but I actually never did because I started working. I liked working. I liked learning. I liked earning my money. I liked to have been independent. And so I worked in corporate communications and change management. And I did that for, I, I can't even tell you how many years. I think my last role, I was there, I don't know, maybe eight years. Um, I was working like for global- working with. Oh, you're going to, I was just going to yeah, ask you. Yeah, because I was working for a global oil company and I was basically managing like the people side of change projects. So when something was changing, I was managing the impact on sort of people and how do we explain to people what's happening and how do we best help them through it. It was essentially yeah. um, what I was doing until I fell pregnant in, well, let me work this out, 2012. So like nine years ago. So I fell pregnant with my first a child my son um I went off on maternity leave I was really lucky that we got a year like a year's paid leave um which is amazing that's nice. I think that's, here they give you yeah. like two weeks or something ridiculous I mean even for the UK a year's a year's really good that's I think usually yeah. you get six months maybe nine months but a year was amazing so I you know took advantage of that I took that full year but after my son was born um I struggled with postnatal depression and it, you know it wasn't the the best year let's say um and it was only towards the end of it that I was starting to feel sort of more myself a bit better um I think a sort what of a combination you? of sorry I was just going to go into that depression a little bit what 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 shifted like in that postnatal depression I know that that's a big word that can mean a lot of things but like how how much was it actually affecting you on a day-to-day -day basis with like the normal things that you do I think more than I was was admit 
back then um I think I was I was really I was basically in denial about it and do you know what's really weird it's I kind of knew something was wrong but it was like I was trying to pretend it wasn't like I don't know if you have this in the US but we have health visitors who who come around to your house once you've had a baby and check on you and check on the baby and the baby's growing and feeding okay and that you're okay and um looking back they must have kind of sussed that something wasn't quite right with me because I seem to have more visits than any you know any of my friends that <laughs> have babies at the same time like and I and I distinctly remember her doing this questionnaire with me like you know do you often feel sad and I can't remember all the questions and I know I've, I remember this now and I'm quite ashamed to say that I lied my way through it because I didn't I don't know why I didn't want anyone to know that I wasn't okay and it's such um a strange thing to say and I especially because you know now I'm very open about talking about mental health um, and I still struggle with anxiety and, I'll, and I'm very openly talk about that and I'll talk about you know how it was after having my son but I don't know whether at the time I don't want to psychoanalyze myself but I don't know whether it was partly it was you know the, I think a lot of the part of the reason for sort of having well don't, I know it doesn't need to be a reason but I feel like a lot of the reason I struggled was feeling a loss of self and suddenly being in this position where I didn't know what to do. Like mm-hmm. I'd always felt pretty, you know, independent and things had generally, you know, gone okay. And I'd sort of had a good career and everything seemed okay. And then I had this little person in my house that I couldn't understand <laughs> and I didn't think understood me. And he cried all the time. And I don't think it helped that he wasn't great at feeding. He didn't really sleep. He had colic. He cried constantly. None of this is his fault, by the way, but just to yeah. build up a picture that I I felt that he was unhappy, which made me more unhappy. I was tired, which I'm not a good, I'm not good with time. Like I need my sleep. I'm not a good person when I'm yeah, tired generally. And I think, yeah, I think that for whatever reason, I didn't want to admit anything was wrong. And it took a long time until I did. Like my husband kept saying, you know, this isn't right. You know, you're, you're not okay. Eventually I came to terms with that. And then I got some like um, counseling over the phone, my phone counseling, which really helped. But that was like towards the end of that year when I was thinking about returning to work and to be honest things were picking up a bit then anyway so my son was born in the spring his birthday's like in a couple of weeks and you know it was coming you know the evenings were getting lighter as he was coming closer to being a year old he was like sleeping better he was you know we we were past the feeding bit then because he was having solids so he was putting on weight and he just I don't know I think around the nine, 10 month mark, he started chilling out a little bit. You know, he seemed like a happier <laughs> child. <laughs> yeah, do you I, think you know, that there was like a scale of, as he progressed, it sort of relieved the mental stress that you had? I mean, for for me, I like, when you say you didn't want anyone to know the struggle and it's like, I've been there so many times. And then I feel like a lot of my journey has been catching myself being like, wait, why am I acting like everything's okay? And then trying to learn how to like share my feelings with people that are really close to me so that I can like, it's, it's almost like a self therapy in a way with like your friends or your closest companions. And like, if I haven't, if I hadn't done that, who knows what kind of like stress that would have manifested into my body and like what, it, how, how it would have affected me. So as he was growing a little bit, I imagine maybe you were kind of coming in alignment with his little spirit and, and it was, it was relieving a little bit, I, I imagine. Yeah, I think so. And I think also from around, like say, nine months, you know, I think when he started sleeping better, that made a change. And then 
honestly, I do think coming into spring, I mean, we were talking about this before we started recording, like here in the UK, over the last couple of days, the sun's come out, it's felt warmer, you can see the old daffodil. There's something about spring that just uh, lifts your spirits a little bit. But the one thing that wasn't the sort of back then, the one thing that still wasn't sitting quite right with me was going back to work. So I had assumed, you know, I'd always kind of planned that I would go back after the year and that I would go back part time. And I was kind of thinking, oh, I'll go back maybe three days a week and see if one of those can be at home. Um, and I started speaking to my to my boss in the HR department. And it was, I don't know, it was kind of weird. Like everyone was sort of had already assumed that I'd be coming back, you know, doing more hours than what I'd wanted to. Um, But because I had a global role, I was quite keen that I didn't actually want that because I already knew that, you know, chances are I would end up working more than the hours that I I would have, you know, that I'd be in the office. Because obviously I'd have to leave work, physically leave work to like pick my child up and stuff. But because I was had a global role chances are I'd then be going home and you know getting on calls and things so that we had some sort of back and forth and eventually I just felt like I couldn't do it like I physically thought the thought of getting on a train so because we live um it's probably about 40 minutes from London on, on the train but the thought of getting on a train and leaving my child all that physical distance to go and do something that my heart you know after a year out don't get me wrong I enjoyed my job while I was in it but of the time that I wasn't working I, I started thinking there's more to life than this there's more to life than being in an office for you know eight nine hours a day and you know getting on a packed commuter train always you know rushing to you know pick my son up and yeah, all of the things it just all felt a bit much this so, was like 2000 what 13 14 by this time 2014 yeah 14? 2014 how old do you mind me asking how old you were when this happened yeah, I'm trying to work this out because <laughs> how else am I now? <laughs> oh, I'm trying to work this out. I'm almost 39, so I was almost 32. Yeah, that's right. Almost about to turn 32. Yeah, interesting. Okay. And I just thought, yeah, I don't know if this is for me. And so, I, you know, I put a lot of thought into, well, if I don't do that, what do I do? And um, my husband was great and really supportive and said, well, you know, if you you know, if you don't want to do anything, first of all, straight away, you don't have to, you've, we, you know, we've got a little bit of leeway, you've got a little bit of time to figure it out. But I've never been one to do nothing. You know, I, yeah. I never, you know, that's kind <laughs> of just not me. So I retrained as a children yoga teacher, which might sound like a complete, well, it was worlds away from what I was doing. Um, to give a bit of context, I had practiced yoga for years and years and years since I was probably in my late teens. I want to say I went to my first class when I was maybe 18, 17, 18, really enjoyed it. And I'd sort of been going to yoga classes like at least weekly. And I'd moved around a lot in that time. I'd moved from my hometown. I'd, I would lived in London for a couple of years and then I moved out here to Kent. And I'd always found like a regular yoga class. And it was something I, I did, something I enjoyed. And then I saw an opportunity to start my own business. It was like a franchise teaching yoga to preschoolers and babies. And I thought, well, this is great because it's something that I, I'm passionate about. I really liked the company, like the ethos that they had. Um, Obviously, I felt like it would work for my family because you can only teach kids and babies at times when they're up and awake, which meant that would work well with my own child and childcare and things like yeah. that. <laughs> and um, 
I like the idea of running my own business, but because it was a franchise model, I I equally like the fact that while it was my business, I wasn't going to be like completely out on my own. So I yeah, guess it was a way a of like, of yeah, yeah, of like, yeah, dipping my toes in. And so I did that and it was great. I really enjoyed, I mean, it was a good introduction to working for myself because I was kind of, there was a lot I didn't think about admittedly when I got started, you know, the fact like how long it takes to sort of market yourself and actually get people <laughs> to come to your classes. It's one thing to hold them, yeah. um, but it's another thing to get people to come along. Um, and I realized quite quickly that the best way to get, you know, to get classes for preschoolers was to actually go into like preschools and nurseries where there, you know, there were lots of children there and then get those venues to pay me directly rather than trying to get parents on board. Um, because also, you know, a lot of kids here are in daycare for at some, you know, at least some portion of the week and sort of nurseries and preschools are looking for activities. So that's a really interesting point that I can, I, I'm going to point it out really quick for anyone listening by doing that. It's almost, it's similar to like, if I sit here every day and I, and I just record my podcast and we swap podcasts. So anyone listening, we just, Vicky just released an episode that I was on her show with. Um, and I'll link to that in the show notes, but it's bring your product idea to life. And it's an, it's a great direct. She's really good at what she does as far as presenting information and, and giving you like really good stuff to work with. But if I sit here every day and I only record my podcast and I release it to just my audience over and over again, and I'm not like, there's obviously the leg of asking other people that were on your show to share and things like that. But it's very different than if I am seeking to be on other shows that have new audiences to find new people, you know, that, that didn't even know you existed before that you could eventually maybe create some sort of collaboration with, or share a product with, or, um, a creation. So what you were doing was like kind of the second leg there where you, instead of just waiting to market and try to bring one person at a time to whatever audience you could bring in, you, you went to places that actually already had the kids and the babies and that made it much easier. I, I imagine. Yeah, because what I found out and how I used to get in the door is I used to I used to basically phone up these nurseries and say, can I come and do a free class for you? And you can, you know, and you can see what you think. So I would go and do a class. And honestly, 100 percent of the time, the kids would love it. So the adults see the kids loving it. They realize that, you know, this is an activity that is good for the children. And I'm kind of, you know, when I say taking charge, obviously, there need to be other adults present. But, you know, I'm sort of doing an activity with the children for you know half an hour 45 minutes um there's lots of benefits and for a nursery especially some of them would you know some of them have a budget for this kind of thing or some of them ask parents to sort of pay a a small amount towards it but actually it's not a lot of money and it's it was a much easier sell when I'd come in and done my session and they can see that the kids really liked it um that really really helped me and once I figured out that worked that was what i sort of went after because when I first started the business the other sort of thing I think I got wrong and I do think this applies to other businesses as I tried to do everything I was like I'm going to do classes for preschoolers and I'm going to do classes for babies and I'm going to go to nurseries and I'm going to try and have classes in schools and I wanted to do all of the things and once I sort of went actually this isn't really working and I'm just going to do 
classes in nurseries and I think I did one or two classes for mums with like young babies like not non-crawlers like little little babies mm-hmm. and um because those classes always filled up as well um main, those ones did actually fill up really well just from word of mouth which was fantastic but once I knew what worked and I just stuck with what worked that I had so much you know it, it was much easier than trying to do all of the things and that I think that does apply to lots of different things if you can yeah, it does. Definitely. just focus <laughs> on the things that work and that doesn't mean you can't try new things but don't try 10 new things at once try every one time I thing. find myself doing like I'll, I'll like focus if I cut everything out and I'm like okay this is the thing that like every day I wake up and I try to come up with two things that I can do that's going to move me towards my dreams quicker right so but eventually that could lead to me doing like 10 different projects. And when I'm in that space where I'm like stretching my energy so thin, nothing really moves forward very quickly. (laughs) But I know when I cut everything else out and I just choose the one that's going to be a catalyst, like things move really, really quick. It's actually, it makes so much sense, but I guess as creatives or people, there's two aspects to that. One, we have interests in a lot of different things, but uh, the other aspect is a lot of that interest is resistance away from the most important thing. <laughs> so it's like you kind of hinder yourself by stretching yourself too thin. Yeah. And I think it's also really hard. You spread yourself really thin and it's hard to see what's working. Um, and sort of coming back to, to, to products just for a moment, I see this quite a lot with clients who've launched a new product. So, you know, sell if put a product on Amazon and they say, okay, I want to do some Amazon sponsored advertising and I'm going to do Facebook ads and I'm going to do Instagram ads. And it's like, and, 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 and. And mm. I say, you know, there's nothing wrong with trying to like get the words out and do a big splash, but particularly for paid advertising, my advice, and this may not agree, you know, everyone may not agree here is do one, give it a month, see how it goes. And then maybe try the next thing. Don't give it two days, decide it's not working and then jump onto the next thing. Like yeah. really double down on the one you're using, try and get it to work for you. So at least if you decide, okay, I'm going to try something different, you've given that first thing a really decent shot, you know, put your time into trying to make it work and actually properly exploring. Cause sometimes, you know, it might just be your targeting's a bit off or so, you know, something's a bit off and you spend a bit of time and then suddenly, you know, it's working really well for you. But if you keep switching every couple of weeks or days and trying, you trying the next thing, you might be lucky and land on the thing that works for you, but <laughs> you might not. <laughs> yeah. You might, might take a long time. How did you, so when you were working within this, this franchise and working with the little babies, um, how did that transition into your online entrepreneurial type of adventures that you've done and with tiny chipmunk and, and the like? Yeah. See, I told you this is going to be a long story. So sorry for that, but we, I no. promise we're almost there. So it's what all happened? relevant. Yeah. So it was like, however many years after that, I'm losing the time scale here, but um, I fell pregnant with my second child. And during that pregnancy, I wasn't that mobile. I had like some issues with my hips and sort of getting up and down off the floor and like lying on my belly and certain things I just couldn't do anymore, which meant that I couldn't teach yoga anymore. You know, realistically, especially when you're teaching young kids, you need to have a certain amount of energy about you. You can't take five minutes to climb off the floor. Um, and I, you know, I realized that was the case. So I found, um, I employed a teacher to work for me to take over the classes I had been running. I think actually, maybe I actually employed two teachers. I can't remember, but I, I got some people working for me to cover the classes that I was doing. And I just focused on the, 
you know, the admin side, you know, the marketing and the finances and the behind the scenes stuff, because I could do that. And I, I, I feel like that was fairly early in the pregnancy. So by the time my second child was born, almost exactly three years after my first, I hadn't been sort of actively going out and working, working for a while. And I'll be honest, I was climbing the walls. Um, I'm not great at not doing much. And while I love being a mum, and while I was busy to an extent having a young family, my eldest child was in preschool a few days a week my second child was a much easier baby she was like the kind of baby that just sleeps most of the you know Mm -hmm. kind of what I thought my first would be like really content (laughs) slept a lot um and I was kind of like looking around for well what next because I couldn't at that stage despite how good she was it was I still wasn't ready physically or mentally to leave her and go back to teaching yoga to other babies so I was like well what what am I going to do and I just recently got that point got into podcasts this was about five years yeah coming up for five years ago because my daughter's almost five I just got into podcasts and um my baby sort of loved being in like those baby carriers where you like strap them onto you Mm. and so I would she she practically lived in it I'll be really honest for the first year of her life so I'd put her in the carrier and basically just go on with my life you know take my little my boy out and about or go for walks and do errands around the house with her like strapped happily onto me and I used to listen to a lot of podcasts because you know I was walking a lot and you know why not and I came across a podcast and it can I say which podcast it was do you mind me mentioning So it was Smart Passive Income with Pat Flynn and he was interviewing, um, it was two men, I've forgotten who they were, their names. I did go back and look for the episode a while ago, but I couldn't find it, which was annoying. And, but basically they were talking about their business selling products on Amazon. They were both into yoga, which is what I think sort of triggered the my interest first of all and so they'd started selling their own brand of yoga products I think they were selling mats and blocks and things like that and they were talking about how they were doing it and they were talking about the kind of lifestyle this gave them you know they could track they could live and work anywhere in the world and one of them was talking about how we lived by the beach and worked by the pool I think they were both I, I don't remember the details but I get the feeling they were both like fairly young and single maybe Possibly yeah. not, maybe they had families, but the way they described their lifestyle. But it really appealed to me um, because I wanted that kind of freedom, not the sort of freedom to like work on the on the beach and travel necessarily, but the kind of freedom to not have to work nine to five. And they were yeah. talking about the fact that selling products meant they made money when they were sleeping. And I was like, yeah, there's something in this. And at that around that same time, like I said, my little one, my youngest was probably about four weeks old. And I started to dig out all the stuff that I'd used with my firstborn to use again with her. Like, you know, I put lots of stuff you know, into storage boxes and I was getting it out again. And I was just shocked by the quality of some of these baby products, like towels <laughs> that were the size of napkins that last like yeah. two weeks and like muslin cloths that were all like hard and crispy. And I was thinking why doesn't this last like I, I you know I, I and most of what I'd got I'd I'd thought I was making good sort of good buying decisions and I was buying things that I had assumed at the time would last and you know three years later I'm getting things out and thinking you know this is either isn't good enough to be used again or it's only going to last me like you know a couple of weeks a month at, at, at best and I thought yeah that's not good and 
So that's when I came up with the idea to create my own range of baby products. And that's where Tiny Chipmunk, my bamboo baby products yeah yeah. so tiny the name is because my little one my 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 second baby she actually looked a lot like a chipmunk when she was little because she had these really (laughs) she was really tiny but she had massive cheeks like imagine like a really teeny tiny baby big old cheeks so we called her chipmunk so that's where the name came from and actually it wasn't going to be tiny chipmunk this is a a secret but um i think we were looking for variations with chipmunk in them but tiny chipmunk was the only url that was available so that's why, that's why it's time. I feel to like do it works back. out rather well. Yeah. yeah, I like it. So yeah, so that's how that all came came about. Really, it was just to meet a need, and through my yoga business, which I still had at that time, although I wasn't teaching, there was like another arm of the business, which was that. Um, and I didn't do this myself, but some of the other franchisees also sold bamboo children and babies clothing that was made by a cooperative and I can't remember where the cooperative was um but so head office would talk to us about bamboo and about the properties of bamboo and I actually had some bamboo yoga gear that I had anyway because I really liked it because it was so breathable and soft and mm. um so that sounded like a really good fabric and so yeah so I now have so almost exactly five years on I now have a, a range of different bamboo baby products um that's, that's so interesting so I want to point out that <clears throat> when I got to stop I'm trying to catch myself I'm gonna say I'm gonna point out I'm not pointing anything <laughs> I'm gonna share that when I study e-commerce and and I've transitioned out of doing a lot of like resale because I was doing so much resale of of these products that are probably really shitty and don't last uh, a lot of sports and outdoor gear. I mean, there was some really good stuff, but eventually when you come back to making your own products, it's sort of an extension or a representation of yourself. And a lot of people can feel like it's very overwhelming to move into something like e-commerce or making a product because there's so many companies that do it. But what I've noticed in the past three to four years and probably more extended than that is this extreme demand for people looking for great quality products that probably are made by a small business or somebody that they can relate to as opposed to a giant corporation just printing textiles and factories. And so if you can relate something in your life to, I mean, we all have these periods where we're like, you know what? I really wish I had this. And you search online, you can't find exactly the type of thing that you want. It's just not there. There's like similar things, but not like the exact one if you can relate to that and like you come up with an idea that you're actually using, these are the things that you, that you could potentially have success with. And I love that your, your dive into like the quality of things changed and turned into an entire product line of things that for you to make for babies, because all of that was so relevant to your life. But then at the same time, like there's so many people that have babies, right? That's, that's like a big market. And then you're pulling it down to like these little bamboo um, items that, that can help people. So you never, like, I imagine in 2012, when you first started sharing that story, never would you have thought that you would have a a product line for, you know, infants or babies on Amazon or any other e-commerce platform. I know you use Shopify, which I'd be interested in getting into your experience with that as well. But um, yeah, it's always fascinating to me to, to, to reflect on, on transitions like that. Yeah, absolutely. I never, it was never sort of in, it was never my plan. It was never, I never, something. I, to be honest, kind of doing something for myself 
was something that I'd thought about before it was just what and I think it was because there was a need I think that's the reason I I did it is because there was a real need and I thought I'm not the only one I'm not going to be the only person who's thinking <laughs> you know this isn't you know these products aren't 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 good enough quality or they're not lasting because lots of and not lots of people do want that not everyone that's the other thing I you know I want to say is that I know not everyone will resonate with like the story that I've shared or will feel the same because some people let's face it there are people who would rather buy something cheap and use it for a couple of years and and then be done with it and that's fine too you know everyone what I'm basically trying to say is that you can't you're not most products aren't for everyone but the people who they're for hopefully so that you know the customer they're for will hopefully really like them but it's okay to not appeal to everyone and the reason I mentioned that is because I had lots of issues with my products not issues but sort of mindset issues around the price because they're a bit more expensive than than some other comparable products and the reason they're a bit more expensive is because I feel the quality is really high and therefore they're going to last longer so they're more of an investment therefore I can charge a bit more but it was actually quite a hard thing to do initially because I felt like I was often having to justify the price especially when I was doing face-to-face stuff like back in the early days I'd go to like not big baby shows not like I'm not I'm not talking about shows in like arenas or exhibition halls I'm talking like small local stuff but I'd go along and do shows and people would ask the price and they'd say oh that's a bit expensive you know I could get it in mother care for for less (laughs) and I and I really had to like hold firm on that no I'm just kidding no but I really had to I know but I really you know sometimes I would think oh maybe I should you know put the price down because and I really had to hold firm to know because the people who who want that, who want these kind of products will see the value and it's okay if not everybody does. And really are willing to pay. Yeah. I, I could not, I, I can't explain I'll try to explain how much I resonate with that, but I, when I made the affirmation deck, the sweet ass affirmations deck originally, like you were talking about a lot of people have ideas. I, I look at the creative world as like, there's all these muses, gods, source, whatever. And, and through frequencies, like they are sh- sending ideas down to all of these different brains at simultaneously, right? Who is going to take an idea and transform it into the physical world? Cause that's what is wanted from a muse. It's like, how do you bring this into life? And one of you is going to be the vessel to do it. So are you paying attention to that? And I kept getting these ideas of like, I should make this affirmation deck that isn't traditionally like, you know, woo and just like fluffy or whatever. And I was looking at prices of it and I was like, well, these sell for $12. Like there's no margin here, even if I made it. And I, and I had to go along that, like that path of, okay, well, what if I make it more expensive because it is different and it is something that I would want to use myself, but I was very insecure about if anybody else would want to use it as most creatives are. Um, so I made it and I priced it higher, a good $10 higher, which is like almost most decks are like $12, $13 and US dollars. And then we priced ours at $22.22. Um, there is a, a buyer out there and I am this buyer actually, where I look at things that are priced a little bit higher and I assume that the quality is better and therefore I'm more interested And I go like now in my days, I'm actually looking for those types of items when I'm searching because there's so much shit that gets flooded into the market. As soon as there's a good product, you have all these people trying to copy it in the cheapest manner possible. I try to find the stuff that's more expensive. Same with 
my uh, Amazon list business, like we sell product information for people to buy and resell. And we were told multiple times when starting that, like with, there's not that many other companies that do it, but their prices are way cheaper. I mean, a good bit cheaper. And I was like, you know what? I feel like our quality is better. I feel like our team's better and the demand's high enough that I'm going to price this higher to make it worth our time. And we'll find the people who are looking for that kind of quality product. And you know what? These people that do that generally complain a lot less too, right? And you you kind of find the universe plays it out for you. So those two decisions to to be like that premium price have drastically changed my life and it has worked out for the best. And when I when I drop my decks down to the price range of the other company's decks, they do not sell as well. That's also really interesting, which I'm sure that you've doing stuff with price testing and things, working with clients and your own products have seen how that can work as well. It's not, it's not always like, it's not always because it's cheaper. It's going to sell better essentially. So. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think pricing is always hard and I'm definitely not saying for a minute, put a high price on things just for the sake (laughs) of it or just to appeal to a certain type of customer. I think it has to justify the price, but like, as you said, in your example, you could say, okay, well, this is why my product is worth more than the others. I think as long as you, as long as you feel in your gut that the price is right. And I, I mean, obviously you need to do a bit of research as well, but if you know yours is more expensive, but you also know why it's more expensive and it feels good to you. Cause I think we all know, don't we, whether it feels good or whether we feel like we're, um, you know what I mean? You feel you feel it whether you're you're pricing for the right re- you know whether your price is where it's at for the right reason or the wrong reason. I think you know that you do sort of it comes down to intuition. It. I think so. I mean, it Which comes I mean, down to a lot of research, but it also comes down to a price. You you've got to think if someone comes up to me and says, "What's the, what's the price of this?" Do I feel comfortable giving that price? And if your instinct is no, you know you recoil a little bit at the thought of it, and maybe you're not quite right with it. And that's okay. And prices can change as well. That's the other thing. I say this to clients quite a lot, especially on Amazon. Um, People can get a little bit hung up on price, but I say, do you know what? Price it what you want today. And if you need to change it tomorrow, change it tomorrow. As long as you've worked out the margins and you've worked and you know know what the impact of changing the price will be on your margin, then you can change it. Doesn't matter. If you feel like you want to try a higher price, you want to try a lower price, that's all fine. You You can do all of that. What did it feel like when you first, so you, you launched your first product with Timey Chipmunk. When you started seeing success with it, I'm sure there was a period of time where it was like tough. What was that like going through and in, in finding that success in the first product and then being able to like tweak the systems and then duplicate to create new products? Like what was that time frame like? And, and um, is there anything in that process that you think would be valuable in sharing? Um, let me think about it. So the first, so I think the first product, I think it was about nine months between the first and the second product, something like that. And it was when I saw the first product starting to sell, I started, you know, I was starting to think of ideas for the next one. Um, and in terms of, it, it was amazing when I started seeing sales, especially for people I didn't know, because the first couple of sales, I'll be honest, you know, they, they were friends and family, you know. Cause, was this Amazon uh, specific? Yeah, it was most, it was on Amazon. you have a Shopify Amazon. site yet? I had a Shopify site as well. I had Bafe. I launched with Bafe because I kind of wanted a presence that wasn't just Amazon. Yeah. I wanted something that was I'm mine. learning Shopify now and it's really nice. I really believe in it for the future. 
yeah I think it's nice I think it's nice to just have something that's yours mm -hmm. as well um so I launched on both and the first couple of sales you know where I were friends or friends of friends or I'd look at the postcode and it would be someone local to me so I think well they've probably seen me on like a Facebook post or something but when I started getting sales and people I didn't know who presumably didn't know me people who were just coming across my products and buying them that was really exciting yeah um the second product was a lot quicker and easier to produce than the first not easier in terms of the actual product because it was a little bit more complicated because it was a bit more bespoke so my second product was like a hooded towel but I had really um I had a lot of thoughts about how I wanted it to look how I wanted it to feel how I wanted it to be finished and so it was the crush too I used to sell <laughs> probably the the cheap version that you were talking about earlier of those oh, did you? I, I sold a lot I would it was in the baby market for a while yeah and did really well with it but I remember those hooded towels. Yeah, I had such a vision for it. And it actually took a fair while to get to exactly what I wanted to find a supplier who got what I was after. And I actually found a, a brilliant supplier who worked with me really hard on, on making sure that everything looked right and was finished right. And there were lots of, sort of samples being sent over to me of various things to look at. And that was great. So the process was a bit more complicated from a design point of view but the actual sort of process of getting the product created because I'd done it once and I knew what I was doing it, it, I believe it is a process you can replicate and doing anything the first time is the hardest plus second time round, you've got all the mistakes you made first time you can learn from yeah. as well because you're going to make mistakes I've made some pretty big ones if I'm honest and I don't mind talking about those if anyone's going to find it interesting because it's um it happens if you try anything new you're bound to get some things wrong yeah let's so I want to talk I do want to get into the mistakes first can you can you share how you went from like having no idea how to supply like find a supplier and manufacture and design a product to to doing that initially like what what steps you went through to figure that out. And then I would love to hear the mistakes. After. Sure. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, all I, when I say all I did, it's not, it's going to, um, don't mean to simplify it, but I spent a lot of time on Google and a lot of time on YouTube and a lot of time listening to podcasts. And I think that was actually, I don't want to say it was a mistake, um, but I'm glad that I've gone through that. I'm glad I went through that process um, but I'm glad the second time round I didn't have to do that all over again because what I found um, as I mentioned earlier when I was talking about when I started my first business and I was trying to do all of the things um, I, I do think I am susceptible to that I have a lot of ideas I want to do a lot of different things so what I was doing basically is listening to podcasts and going on YouTube and finding out how to create a product and I was basically taking everything on board and thinking I had to do everything <laughs> rather than just going okay this person sounds sensible I'm just going to follow their advice I wasn't doing that I was thinking this person sounds sensible I'm going to follow their advice but I also like what this other person's saying um and because of that I think I, I think I probably missed a few steps and I think I thought it was going to be, if I'm really honest, I thought it was going to be a bit easier than it was um, because I think I was also looking to not always the right people because a lot of the people putting information out about that time, this is probably 2016, um, with people that were doing really well, they weren't beginners. They weren't people like me who are 
looking to create a first product and if they were often they already had some kind of sort of backing you know maybe they they already had a company or they had some sort of investment behind them they were they weren't someone starting that's from right when i started to amazon and e-commerce as well and did you but find you, the same that a lot of pe- other people in the space seem to be like miles ahead of you? Because I really found that. Yeah, I think it always feels that overwhelming because we're, we're, we're like kind of built and taught to like to to compare ourselves to somebody who's more successful and then feel bad about it. But comparison is the thief of joy. And and I actually just I I really probably annoyed the shit out of a couple of people that were doing systems that I was interested in by asking question after question after question, and then trying to implement it. Um, but because I wasn't doing private label, like you, like you're creating your own brand, which is a whole nother level. And that's something I've been working through the past few years. And that's a much, it's like a really long-term thing. Um, I wasn't having to do a lot of the aspects with the whole resale side of stuff. So instead of finding, suppliers essentially that you were going to manufacture and design and print your own products. I was really just finding more so wholesaler dealers, right? Which is sort of similar, but not really because I don't have to go through the design and think about intricacies. All I have to do is find a product that's in high demand and then source where people are selling it essentially. So uh, I've, I've struggled personally with uh, when I was sourcing like the, how to print the decks that was a whole new territory for me. I was like, I don't know. I've never really talked to anyone. Like, I don't, I'm not sure. Should I get on Alibaba? Should I get on AliExpress? Like who, how do I find a manufacturer that prints cards? And then I just started talking and networking with people. And eventually someone was like, Oh, I have a friend who prints cards. I'll put you in contact with them. And then I was able to get a connection there. But um, yeah, I was curious how you, how you initially found yeah. that those suppliers. Having a network really helps. And because I did the same thing with suppliers, first of all. So, with my first product, I just went on Alibaba. And a lot of the other stages, um, I don't mind sharing as well. So, for things like helping me sort of put the designs onto paper and for like coming up with a logo and stuff, I used to cycle mm. 99 designs mm-hmm. where you basically pitch what you want. And then you don't pitch what you want, you sort of state what you want. And lots of designers pitch to you. And then you like narrow it down to the one that you want to work with I really liked that site I really liked the concept um so that's what I used for all sort of like the branding and packaging and and that kind of thing and I went to Alibaba to look for a supplier and the reason I mentioned like why it's great to have a network which I didn't then but I do now is for subsequent products I've been able to find suppliers by talking to people and they've like recommended them to me so for example I was looking my products and at the moment well, they were all produced in China, but I recently found a, a a European supplier who can do who can produce the same products, um, which I like because obviously it's closer to to home for, for me in the UK. Yeah. So there's like less shipping, and you know, so for you know, environmentally it's much better. But I don't think I would ever come across this place if I hadn't met someone who and got chatting who said, "Oh, I know somebody you should speak to." I just don't think it would have happened because, you know, the internet's great for, for finding things, but there's, I don't know, nothing beats like a proper human connection. And <laughs> yeah, someone and being somebody, able like, to say, gonna be like, yeah, hey, I'm going to put some SEO research into letting the world know that I have a supplier that can make this particular thing. Like it just doesn't work that way. I don't think anything beats like having yeah. a network and having people that you can ask. Um, and I, I mean, I, I also don't feel that people necessarily have to sort of give up the name and their supplier if they don't want to, because of course, right. 
you know you don't have to and some people don't want to I mean I don't share the details of mine um but I will happily because you know I don't feel like you know you you spent you put a lot of time and effort into making those connections and finding someone to work with and especially if it's someone you don't know but if I was if someone was were to ask me and they were looking to do something you know not a product competing with mine then yeah. sure I'd, I'd be very happy to to say okay well here are some suppliers I know who do a really good job because it's just nice to be able to do that for people yeah we all have help right everything is just kind of a big web of helping each other and networking is just talking to you right now, the things that I learn in this, this hour that we get to share, it's, it's why I keep doing these things <laughs> for sure. It's like you, it just it helps connect the dots to anything that we're trying to create and bring into the world. And, and it's quite magical. Absolutely. It's my favorite thing about my podcast as well. It's just the things that I learn, And also weirdly, like the connections I find that I have with people, once you start talking, like the world is such a small place and we're all yeah, pretty connected yeah. actually. It's nice. Yeah, for sure. That's funny. Even when you're going back to that Pat Flynn, you know, like I, I was listening to that around that same time and it was a big catalyst for me making changes towards freedom lifestyle and, you know, Tim Ferriss's four hour work week. And these, I reflect on those moments quite often because I am living that lifestyle that I once thought was an impossible dream where I can work from anywhere and I am my own boss and I could go sit by the beach if I wanted to. And, uh, Pat, like fast forward, there's, he's, he's like a friend of a good friend, like in, I've never met him in person yet, but if I did, I think it would, I'd realize now that the world's so small that back then I would have looked at him like this, like God-esque figure, but now I would just be like, Oh, he's just another dude creating things and sharing. And it's like, we need as many people like this as we can get. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what, what mistakes, so you, as you found your suppliers and you were, you were launching your products, did you, when you actually designed them, were you using 99 designs for the actual product designs as well? Yeah, I mean, my first product was fairly simple, but I needed um, designs for the patterns to be like prints that were going to be printed on them. So I used 99 designs for that and for the packaging design, logo design. Yeah, I used I used them for everything initially. Um, I just really like the concept that you could put an idea, you know, put a brief out there and then get lots of different people's interpretations. So when you make brief. a... Yeah. So like, what kind of file do you have to send to a supplier to get, like, is it an actual, like, I, I'm guessing there's a certain type of program that does a, a, a measurements of design that, you, or, or is it more of like a, this is what my product kind of looks like. Can you, and then the manufacturer can actually design it up for you before they print them. Yeah. I mean, I would always recommend getting samples made up before you get a proper product um, of whatever your producing because I I'm trying to remember back to that first product because this was obviously a long time ago so I had the designs and then I also had the designer that I worked with sort of mock them up to show how they would look on the actual mm -hmm. product which is pretty cool actually I don't know how she did that but I really like that I know mine and, does it too um, and I'm like how do you do this yeah. <laughs> and I had the design files to share with the manufacturer and at the that time there were two that I was thinking of working with. There were two that were pretty comparable. So it was going to come down to like the quality of the sample. And I had given them dementia. I don't, I can't remember the type of files that we used. There were some sort of files I couldn't open. You know, there were some sort of files that designers use that I clearly didn't have the software for. So I had like a PDF that the yeah. designer had sent that I could look at. And then 
there was this design file that I sent off. And when I got samples back from both manufacturers, one of them looked as I thought it would look. And the other one, the prints were massive, like about four times the size of of the other one. Um, <laughs> even though I'm sure that it, I assume, you, I, can, I assume you, might, you shouldn't make an assumptions, but I, I, I would have assumed that the sizes were specified, which is why I'm really pleased that I had ordered samples and I'd ordered samples from two places because the one where the sizes were out I'm not sure where the miscommunication came but the fact that it was there clearly I went with the one who who produced the products as I had envisioned way. it yeah <laughs> and could you it, imagine it, like just ordering a bunch of a product and having it show up and be like four times the size <laughs> yeah it wasn't so the product was the right size. it was the print on it it was it just oh I got you the print yeah. on the product I was thinking of like this 4x affirmation deck oh no, no. <laughs> although maybe that I would be do, cool <laughs> what I did do though um talking of actually letting something go out is that my and this is the this is the big mistake that I made is that I never thought about getting a sample of the packaging I just didn't think about it I also didn't think much about the fact that I don't know much about paper and card and so I had the packaging designed and I'd spoke to the supplier and they said it was going to be on whatever GSM cards. And I said, yeah, that sounds, anyway, I just sort of went along with it. I don't know what I was thinking. What, what came really clear when I, after I'd ordered that first batch is that the paper, yeah, I would call it paper, basically what the box, the products came in like recyclable boxes, like craft paper, and they pretty much were made from craft paper. They were not made from a sturdy cardboard that was going to withstand being on a boat from China to the UK <laughs> and then yeah. going off to various Amazon warehouses. Getting, you know, I presume they take them off out of the boxes and put them on shelves. And then they put them back in boxes and send them to a customer's house via Royal Mail or whatever. It Basically, in that process, a lot of boxes did not remain intact. And I kept on getting complaints about about the boxes and people saying oh my product arrived and it was because um in I'm sure it's the same in the US but in the UK you don't put like plastic or anything around baby products so this the there were four swaddles baby swaddles in a box so they were like all nicely rolled up and inside this box but there was no other protection because the box was meant to be the the thing keeping them clean and dry and all the rest of it but the boxes were getting ripped or they were doing some of them looked like they were disintegrated. They were awful. They were really bad. And so a lot of times bugs were turning up and they weren't in like really good condition because the boxes weren't great. And that was annoying and embarrassing and an expensive mistake. I mean, don't get me wrong. I still sold all of those first batch. I think though what I did once I'd realized the problem is then obviously, well, solve the problem, you know, between myself and the supplier we kind of worked out what wasn't working and we managed to get the boxes fixed for the next order and I think a lot of that I can't remember how many but some of those first order I basically sold on eBay as a a reduced price and I I, I said they were like new without original packaging and I basically took them all out of the boxes that weren't great and um and then sold them for a cheaper price because I was quite embarrassed by the packaging. And I didn't feel like part of my brand and part of the reason for the higher as well, price, as well as obviously the, the, you know, the longevity and the quality of the products is they were really beautifully packaged or they should have been really beautifully packaged. And in the, in the pictures, they looked like they were really well packaged. And now they are, by the way, now we've fixed it. 
like the boxes are lovely. But back then I, I felt really embarrassed. I felt like I can't charge this price for something like a box that's going to arrive and be dented or ri- it just didn't sit well with me. Even talking to you now about it, I feel a bit sick about it because <laughs> I, it, it, yeah, it was a big mistake. It was my fault. There was no one else to blame for it. Um, Cause even though it, you know, obviously something possibly went wrong in communication with the supplier. I mean, really they maybe should have told me this wasn't suitable material for a box. I can't give them all of the blame because I was the client. I never asked for a sample. I let it happen. Right. Yeah. So and packaging is huge. I mean, that's the first thing somebody sees when they I wrap our decks in paper packaging instead of plastic. And I, I really do think it makes a huge difference for the feel, you know, when somebody picks it, they remember that type of thing. So yeah. yeah, it's so important. And that was probably the biggest mistake I made, um, which is why it's one I don't mind talking about because obviously I, le- I learned from it, um, but I wouldn't want anyone else to make that mistake. And I think it's something that can get overlooked as well. I often have people say to me, oh, but I don't need to think about packaging because I'm going to sell on Amazon. And they think, you know, Amazon going to put it in one of their brown boxes or whatever and send <laughs> it out. I'm like, but no, no, no. Like, even if it's just have it shrink, you know, depending on what it is, even if it's shrink wrapped or it's wrapped in tissue, like whatever it is, it needs some sort of protection because it's got to get from the supplier. Even if that supplier is in the same country as you, it's presumably got to get from a supplier, possibly to a warehouse. It's going to get picked, stored. Oh, they beat the shit out of it. It's like Ace Ventura, the opening scene of that movie where he's just like kicking the box around and it's a, it's mania. It's like, is there urine on this box? Like, did somebody put this like <laughs> near a porta potty and let a bunch of strangers come and defecate all over it? Like, sometimes it's crazy what boxes show up looking like. Yeah, and actually, I'll be really honest. Here in the UK, it's actually got a bit better. There was a time when I was getting so many complaints. Even like when my box issues were fixed, I was getting so many complaints about things turning up and like packaging being damaged and stuff and I was also seeing my own Amazon orders the stuff like I was buying from other people on Amazon turning up Amazon's like here this is your fault we'll take some money from you for this return yeah (laughs) and this um you know I was buying things from other sellers on Amazon and the same thing was you know they were turning up and they were looking you know pretty bad and uh it doesn't seem to be as much of a problem at the moment here anyway definitely seems to be better but still I think packaging is really important and i don't think it matters where you're selling your products you want it to look good because that's like you say it's the first thing someone sees it's a reflection on you it's a reflection on your product people don't care that it's like the amazon delivery driver that wrecks it they don't care it's you know it's your product yeah it's a representation of you which is what we we all as we've kind of made a resurgence into the quality of products, I feel like it is a big thing that's happening. We want to relate. I like, I feel like we're buying products that we want to relate to the story behind. And and that all comes down to branding and how you relate with the people who are making it. And that's, that's what's the difference between buying a product and, and, and being interested in a brand is you buy a product from that same company again later. Right. And that's, if you remember the brand or not, like you buy something and you like it enough to go back and look to see what else they have in the future. And that's, that's a huge, huge step to, um, t- to really dial in is why, why would somebody want to come back and buy something else from you? And that comes down to the initial experience they have with your product. So. Yeah. And I think also there's a lot more interest now in people buying from small businesses, from buying locally, 
rather than just getting everything on Amazon. And obviously, as I've said, my products are available on Amazon. I know that some yours are too, but I do think that people are actively now as well choosing to shop in other places or to like seek out companies directly. It's something I do myself actually. Quite often, if I see a brand's product on Amazon or another marketplace, I will then Google and see if they've got their own website. And if they do, I'll, oh, yeah. I'll buy it on their website because I know as a you know e-commerce um, business owner myself, <laughs> it's like it's going to be better for them if I if I buy off their website. So, do you think do that think there's a doing that? A trend. I don't know if Amazon will ever do this, but I feel like it would be really cool because for anyone listening, a lot of people still don't know that Amazon has third-party sellers. They just think that Amazon sells everything that's on Amazon. But I think it would be really awesome if you could search locally based on sellers in the specific areas that you wanted to support on Amazon. So like if I got on Amazon, I could be like, okay, I want to search for this baby towel, but I want it to be within a range of a hundred miles of where I live as far as who's creating it. And that could actually bring a lot of prosperity to support local um, in the area that you live in, plus like small business support and things like that. We know Amazon's wishy-washy and like, of course they're the biggest corporation ever. And they, it's scary to an extent, but also people are more powerful right in the end. And I think that would be a cool thing to experience. Instead of having to go to Google and, and search it yourself, I wish these marketplaces would sort of help you do that. Yeah, I mean, I guess the bottom line is the marketplaces just want to make money, don't they? And they'd yeah. probably rather you buy the one that's, I don't know, maybe consistently making them the most money. I mean, I know that sounds right. really cynical. And I, ha- I have this <laughs> thing with Amazon, though. I don't know if you feel the same here. If, like, I, personally, if I'm looking to buy something, if I'm buying like a pair of scissors for my kids, I'm just figure something I bought recently, I'll get it on Amazon. But if I want to buy something that I feel like a local business or a small business might have made, like, I don't know, like a card or wrapping paper or something, I'll go to Etsy or I'll go yeah. to like something local to me, like Facebook's quite good for like local businesses. Um, so I feel like that. But then obviously I also sell on Amazon and I recommend other people to to sell on Amazon it's 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 an odd one isn't it because for me the reason for being on there is that there were so many customers like there's already people on there so it's much easier to be found yeah, there's but a then lot of there people is... that live in areas where they don't have a lot of local commerce going on for them to find the things that they need so you can reach those it's not it's all moderation right it's yeah it's not one or the other it's I agree I mean that's why I always I do recommend to people that depending what you sell, Amazon's a great place to be, but I don't always think it's necessarily think it's the only place you should be either. No, because there are people who are going to buy everything on Amazon. Like I know people who, you know, if it's not on Amazon, they're just not going to buy it because you know, (laughs) that's where they get everything (laughs) from. But then there were also the people who just want to buy locally, just want to shop small. And then there were, there were people, I guess probably most of us sort of somewhere in the middle where we'll support local businesses where it's practical, but go to Amazon when you need to pair of scissors the next day or whatever. Um, so, yeah, so I think it's a good marketplace, but um, yeah, it's probably not the only place to be, particularly if you want to be a brand. Because as you say, it's still quite faceless. I still am not convinced that everyone who's ever bought from me on Amazon would know the name of my brand right yeah if you see what i mean it if someone be, asked yeah, them in six months Amazon. 
yeah, if someone said to them in six months time, oh, where, what was that brand of, you know, muslins or where did you get that baby towel? I mean, they're going to, they're going to say Amazon. I don't know how many people necessarily will know the actual brands that they bought from yeah. when they buy on Amazon. And unfortunately, Amazon doesn't share customer emails with the businesses that make the sales through their platforms. So it's really hard to get back in touch with people who do buy your products unless there's a way for them to opt in to your email list, like with a product insert or something like that. So that's frustrating too. Yeah. And that's another reason for having your own website. I actually do that. I have an insert. I have two actually, depending what product you buy for me. If you buy my swat, my baby swaddles, I actually have a free swaddling guide that shows like seven different swaddling methods because babies are different at different ages and stages. And if you just, if you buy something else, then you get like a discount code if you come over to my website. So I have a little insert because I, right from the start, that was the one, that was one thing I thought that was quite hard with Amazon is you just don't have any relationship with the customer. Amazon deals with a lot of the customer service. So even if someone maybe ask for a return you don't necessarily know why because you're so removed from the customer and at least if they're on your email address or even if they've just got an email address for you I would much prefer if someone wasn't happy with my product that they email me and I'll I'll give them a refund or I'll send them a replacement I don't need Amazon to do that for me I'd much rather know what's what's going on but with Amazon yeah especially if they fulfill your orders you you are quite removed from the whole thing or you can be yes yeah I think Shopify is solving some problems there with the integrations and I don't know. I think, I think we're moving in the right direction and there's obviously beauty on all those different horizons from whatever marketplace you're getting into, but it's, it goes back to the original point that you were making and don't, don't, uh, don't put everything in one, one bucket, you know, like play the field a little bit, but also, Amazon is a massive marketplace that allows you to reach buyers that you normally would not buy. Um, so I'm going to share, we could go all day with product creation. I know there's so many different topics involved with this. I, I'm really happy to have you on because you, you sort of teach this to people. So if anyone's interested, I'm going to link back to Vicky's website and her podcast in the show notes and whatever podcasting app you're on, you can just click it below and find. And uh, yeah, tinychipmunk.com. And maybe maybe in the future, you can come back on and we can talk about some like marketing or how you drive traffic or something really interesting along those lines as well. But we are, I'm very happy that we were able to have this conversation and it really helped me kind of reflect on a lot of the processes that I've been through and, it, and it's a journey, right? It's a fucking journey. It is. And thank you. Yeah, I really hope it was it was useful. Um, and yeah, very happy if anyone wants to get in touch with questions and stuff like that. As I say, I'm I'm always happy to help, always happy to share. So if there's anything I can do, that's great. Yeah. So bring your product ideas to life. You can search that in iTunes. I have to say iTunes, Spotify, all the stuff. I have to say that I love your your podcast cover. Oh, thank you. It's trigger. I don't know if you study like colors and how they reflect psychologically. I mean, you were in human, you were working with like human change and stuff in the corporate world before. And, uh, I've been getting deeper into like how certain colors and feeling, you know, how it makes you feel. And when I look at your cover, it kind of makes me feel happy and inspired. And, um, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's just one of those little things, one of those little things that gets me going.
Thank you. Oh yeah, I made um, I actually did, I made that myself the cover, and I'll be honest, the the colours are just because they're my two favourite colours, and I just think <laughs> they're such happy colours, and I kind of wanted the artwork to be a reflection of me and what I'm about, but without like putting my name on it and stuff because, you know, people don't know who I am. So isn't you know you know what I mean? I'm not a celebrity. I can't have my name on my like podcast artwork. But it was kind of a bit of a reflection of of me. And yeah, for anyone who hasn't listened, the podcast is basically me kind of trying to help people out who want to get started in product creation. But it's kind of it's aimed to be the show that I would have wanted when I was started. So people that are I the guests that I have are people that are maybe a few years ahead of you, not like decades ahead of you. And I speak to lots of small business owners and get their insights and stories. And yeah, your story was on this week, Keith, and it's it's great. I just like to talk to real people and find out what they've done and why and how and what they've learned and what they can teach all of us, really. Yeah, beautiful. It's so fun. There's such a crazy spectrum of progress and we're all kind of just melting in this pot together and just trying to keep the world... (laughs) pretty and creative. <laughs> yeah. And not locked down and dark. So, yeah. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge, Vicky. Oh, no problem at all. Thank you. Cool. There's a place called space and it's got the magic. There's a place called space and it's got the balls. There's a place called space and it's got the passion. There's a place called space where we can smash the walls. There's a place called space where we'll face fuck conformity and the chatter of incompetence is slaughtered at birth. In this place called space, we'll build a factory of smiles that will assemble with our minds and sell to Earth. Baby, made through another one, man. I uh, I hope you learned some things about product development. I'm making some cool shit, man. You can make some shit. You can you can sell it. You can make some money. You can buy yourself some fancy little uh, speedos to wear around town. Get a couple looks, boost your self confidence. Because when you get that self confidence, you get you really get a lot of uh, energy to to be creative. And if you walk around town in them little man thongs and you got your little banana hammock on and you got your little vibrating uh, uh, butt plug in and you know you're going to be creative. You know you're going to get some shakti energy, some juice, some kundalini coming up through that body. Woo-wee! Yeah. Yeah, anyway, uh, you can... You can check out all the show notes again at HeathArmstrong.com and share this with your family, your friends. Go put a Speedo on, run around town, uh, paint this episode across your chest with with some lipstick. And you put it right across your chest. And so when you get to the part that says peaking on the right side, it'll be just like wrapped around your nipple there. And people will get real excited. Because, you know, this is a continuous journey of trying to build up brain performance, optimal health in the kinkiest, most intense, creative orgasms of all time. But also just like <laughs> orgasms, man. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, man.